Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Good evening, I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, recorded live tonight at Joe's Pub in New York City. We have got an audience full of smart people, and we'll bring them on stage to tell us something interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. Our theme tonight, bugs, any variety you can imagine. If everything goes as planned, we will all be a little bit smarter by the time we're through. Joining me tonight as co-host, the linguist, author, and podcaster, John McWhorter. So, John, let's see what we know about you so far. We know that you teach not only linguistics at Columbia, but also Western Civ and music history. So those Renaissance man credentials are going to come in handy tonight. We know that you became transfixed by language at age four when your would-be girlfriend, Shirley spoke a language that you did not comprehend and which put up a fence between you, and that language turned out to be Hebrew. And that <laughs> led to your true. lifelong obsession with language. Yeah. We know you gave a famous TED Talk about how texting is not killing the English language. So, John McWhorter, keeping in mind tonight's theme of bugs, uh, tell us something we don't yet know about you. Well, you know what? As far as those bugs went, I should share that I collected because in my adolescence I was rather dateless and so I had to have something to do. I collected 500 insects and I would put them in a little margarine dish and hang them over a lamp until they died. And then I would stick a pin in them and I would have them in these little black boxes. And I was very proud of it and I went to college. And after I came back, After freshman year, they were all eaten away. There was colorful bug dust on the floor Mm. of the boxes Mm. because of these little worms. And it gave me a lesson in the transience of existence. Mm. That's pretty heavy. Um, So you you thought that collecting bugs would increase the dating? uh... No, I I did it all alone. It just kept my mind off of my datelessness. And now I'm teaching my little daughter of five how to collect bugs. And we've got them all right now in a big (laughs) margarine dish just today. We got a little baby cricket. John McWhorter, very happy to have you here tonight for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it will work. Guests will come on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. John, you and I will hear them out. We'll ask some questions. And ultimately, our live audience will vote for a winner. The vote will be based on three very simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? And to help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker, Barry Weiss. Hey, Barry. Hi, Stephen. Barry is a writer and editor for the New York Times opinion section. She's a Pittsburgh native who, I think this is incredibly brilliant and impressive, ran the New York City Marathon once and has never run again. What this says about my character, but I'm sure it's something terrible. I think it's actually something pretty good. Uh, Barry, again, given our uh, bug theme, I'm wondering if you have much firsthand uh, experience. Yeah, so I've never taken the 23andMe test, mostly because I'm terrified of it, but I'm 
pretty much 100% Ashkenazi Jew. And I know this because I'm a person that is plagued by maladies. And one of the maladies that I am plagued by and have been for my entire life are bugs. I went to a Jewish day school where I got lice, which is like modern day leprosy, no fewer than three or four times. Then I go to summer camp and I get so many mosquito bites that the doctors at camp think that I have developed this horrible thing called impetigo. Oh, I remember impetigo, yeah. And um, my parents come up on visitor's day, take one look at me and are just like, you're staying at camp no matter what. So Barry Weiss will be here fact-checking for us. Thank you so much, Barry. All right, it's time to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Would you please welcome our first guest, Andy Smith. Hi, Andy. What do you do? I'm a professor of biology at Ithaca College, and I'm an expert in biological adhesives. So I'm ready. So we're John McWhorter and Barry Weiss. What do you know, Andy, that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? Well, what possible use could you have for slug slime? Is there a group of people who use it for something that we would find counterintuitive but, but beneficial? Like well, they scrape it up and use it for some ceremony or, or something? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> thought. No, no. Um, but the, you, you could use it to design something. So you could not use the mucus itself but design something interesting based on it. Is this research that you've done yourself? Yes. Oh, so let's hear about it. Most slugs produce a slime that's a, that's a little bit slippery and a little bit sticky. They it's can climb disgusting. surfaces. <laughs> but there are some that produce a slime that's much stickier, and it's a defensive secretion. It comes off the back. So if you touch one of these slugs, it, it'll start oozing this orange goop off the back, which I, I know most people would say that's disgusting. I'm a biologist, so to me it's really cool. But they, it, it, I touch the slug, and, and it'll... St- it's really sticky. So when, the first time I found one, I picked one up, and, and it oozed all over my fingers, and my fingers got stuck together. I mean, it, wow. You could pull them apart, but Andy, it was really Andy, what continent strong. is this? It turns out it's local. I mean, I, I've studied biological adhesives for a while, and there was a, um, uh, when I first moved to Ithaca, I, I was, the first week, I saw one of these things on the back porch, and I just You're kidding. You're kidding. How many kinds of slugs are there? Hundreds, thousands? Must be thousands, yeah. No, when you said... In Ithaca? Well, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so wait, you, when you moved to uh, Ithaca, you found this slug that was new to you. Mm-hmm. You accidentally discovered that it made very sticky stuff. Yes. And then did what? So, so once I saw that, I, I, I knew that this material had great properties. The fact that it's so sticky, and I also knew that it was a gel. So a gel is something that's mostly water. So 97% water in this case. Almost universally, they're slippery, like mucus that comes out of your nose. It's, it's slippery stuff. And yet this was incredibly sticky and tough, very hard to break. And so I had been studying materials, so I knew those were actually amazing properties. So what I decided was I had to figure out how it does that. How do you take a slippery gel and turn it into something uh. that's a really powerful, tough adhesive? And the practical applications are all very large, actually. For medic- mostly medical? Medical purposes. Do you give us some specifics. So basically... Um, my goal has been that if you could figure out how glue that would work well enough that could replace sutures. So sutures are a very crude way of putting the tissues together. So you're piercing a skin that's already damaged. It leads to scarring, possibly infection. It hurts. I mean, kids hate them. I uh, have to have anesthesia. If you could get a glue that would work, then, mm. then you'd have something really powerful. So do you like take the patient there who's mm. just been, let's say, open heart surgery and just put a little bowl of salty water and get the slug to crawl up and glue <laughs> right. all over him? How, does that, how do you get it from yeah. slug to patient then? So, so the difficulty of that is it's very poorly controlled. 
What I do is biomimetics or bioinspiration. So we figure out exactly how the animal has, has produces this glue and what makes it special. And then a material science lab can then take that and make a glue that has the same properties using the design principles that we've uncovered. But it's synthetic. It's synthetic, yes. What is the advantage of, in other words, why is synthetic better? Right. I've, I've tried to keep the slugs in terrarium, and they just make a mess. They slime everything. They're cleaning the aquarium all the time. But you can't do it on big scale. You can't make large quantities. And the other thing with a slug is you can't control when it sets. What a doctor wants is something they, they can inject into a wound or slap over a wound and have it set and stick right then when they want it to. Give them a little time to work on it. And then they don't want something that comes off the slug and it sets whenever the slug wants it. Most of the time it's already set by the time it would get Andy, there. Andy, is this the only use that has been found for slugs? Because to be honest, I have often found slugs to be uniquely disgusting creatures. I see them coming out of the garden and it reminds me of what one advantage might be of, of dying. I find them <laughs> preternaturally horrible creatures. Is this the only use that has been found for them, or is there some erection drug or something like that? Okay, not for the slugs. You can buy online snail mucus, and supposedly it has beneficial properties for the skin, but I don't know anything about that. Um, Are slugs just snails without the house, and if so, how can they do without it? (laughs) I've always wondered about that. Yeah, well, this slug, the way it does it is it's got that defensive secretion, so if you bite it, you get a mouthful of glue, that then your mouth is glued shut. That is so disgusting. (laughs) Wow. Uh, it would make a great uh, Iron Chef ingredient, though, wouldn't it? Apparently <laughs> uh, makes your tongue go numb. Um, so, and how far along are you or we collectively in turning this into a, a viable medical application? So real close. So at, right now, basically, a group at Harvard has taken my research, and they've built a, a synthetic material that has the same design principles, and it works spectacularly well. Far superior to any other medical adhesive on the market right now, except it's not biodegradable, but in terms of adhesive strength, it's mm. hundreds of times better than any of the internal glues, better than super glue on a tissue. Wow. So it's C- remarkable. Why has it been so hard to come up with something that would seem to be a medical adhesive? I mean, we have all kinds of adhesives in the world. Why yeah. has this one been so hard? Right, so a lot of the problems with adhesives that they don't work in wet environments. You, the, the man-made adhesives, you have to dry them. Uh, they work well on hard surfaces and dry surfaces to have something that sticks to a flexible and wet surface. And the flexibility is a big issue too because most adhesives, if it's a hard adhesive, it doesn't stick well to your skin which is going to be flexing and bending and stretching. That's going to cause it to peel off. Mm. So you need a material that's flexible and that also sticks very well but it has to be tough. This animal has found a way to make a gel incredibly tough, and that is what makes it such a good adhesive. Andy Smith, so interesting. Medical glue from slugs. Barry Weiss, does it check out? Do you have anything to add to that? Well, I mean, Andy is the chief researcher on this, so unless he's some kind of sociopath, I think that we can believe him. I hope not. When you said Iron Chef and that slugs would be a great Iron Chef ingredient, I was looking into slug recipes and whether or not you could eat slugs. I know that this is what you would want for your last meal on Earth, obviously. Um, So banana slugs, it turns out, have been used as food by Indians and by German immigrants in the 19th and 20th century. And the key thing, though, is that when you are cooking banana slugs or any sort of slugs, the, the... challenge is to get rid of the slime. So you have to boil them like many, many times over in a combination of vinegar and water in order to get rid of the slime. Andy, have you ever eaten 
one of those Not sluggies? Not a slug, no. I've never been tempted. Would you be, would you be Snail, up for it? Snails are delicious. Well, snails are great, but you yeah, can tell slugs would be different. Yeah. Slugs, I think, would be different, and I'm not sure. They're probably more slimy or, I, I don't know. Just I'm, a, I'm a little disappointed in that you know so much about your research subject, but you haven't eaten one yet. <laughs> so that's the only demerit I can think of. But otherwise, Andy Smith, that was just great. Thank you so much. Would you please welcome now our next guest, Brendan Dolan Gabbett. Brendan, come on up. Hey there, Brendan. Hey. What do you do? So I'm a computer scientist over at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering. Very nice. What kind of stuff do you work on, typically? So I research um, how to find bugs in software, how to oh. fix bugs, and in fact, often how to put uh, even more bugs in software. Nice. So a different kind of bug than we, uh, than we thought we might hear about. What do you have for us tonight, then? So, uh, you know, I mentioned that I try to put more bugs in software, and I think that anyone who's used a computer might wonder why anyone would want to do that. So do you have any guesses? Other than the fact that that's the kind of thing that academics get funded to do, um, <laughs> does it have to do with some kind of industrial or governmental espionage? So that's an excellent guess, and people have put bugs in software for that. Mm-hmm. But how about a benign use? Does this have some teaching purpose? The idea of teaching people how to be better programmers or how to watch out for impending disaster from abroad or beyond? Yeah, so it can be used for that. So there are these competitions called capture the flag competitions Mm -hmm. where people learn to become better bug finders by trying to find bugs in intentionally buggy programs. Mm. So you could use it for that too. Um, I've got one more use in mind too. Yeah, that was subjunctive. You said could. So that's not the real one. There's something else. No, but I wanted to make you feel Um, better. (laughs) (laughs) That was very deft because I felt I got this little bun in my stomach. Um, Hmm. Wait, you got a bun in your stomach? Is that, is that an, a linguist idiom that uh, I, I, yeah, means yeah, I, something I different than we it think it means? And yeah. I can make it up because yeah, yeah, good, I'm good. a linguist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is it really something that would make all of us feel good or only like you and a certain subset? Mm. <laughs> so it would make people who write programs for a living feel better. It, it, all right. Um, hmm. All right. Uh, I believe, Brendan, that you should probably put us out of our collective misery. Okay. So maybe this doesn't come as a surprise, but programmers are really bad at writing correct programs. Oh, we know that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Good. So what uh, this means is there's this kind of whole industry that's sprung up that tries to provide tools to programmers that help them find bugs in their programs. Okay. And so, of course, you know, now I'm a programmer. I want to choose the best tool for the job. Uh, we actually have no idea how many bugs are in the programs we use. Ah, so the way that you can know how good a debugging program is is to create the bugs so you'll know what you're looking for. Oh, that's... uh, Yeah. So the issue with debugging is typically too many false negatives, right? Are there... Is there such a thing as false positives in debugging? So there's definitely false positives and false negatives. Mm -hmm. Um, False positives, though, you can kind of figure out how many false positives there are, what the false positive rate is, by just going and investigating them. Yeah. But unless you actually know how many bugs there are in total, you don't know what the false negative rate is. So... What do the people who are already making these popular debugging programs think of your work? They must not like you so much, yes? Because you're pointing out just how bad they are. So uh, we've gotten a little bit of pushback sometimes, um, but we're all in this together. We're all Mm -hmm. writing buggy code, and we all want to actually get rid of these bugs. Sorry to the entomologists. Um, (laughs) 
nerdiest joke I've <laughs> ever heard in my entire ever. life. Yeah, that's perfect, yeah. yeah. Um, we kind of showed that they've really got a long way to go, because um, yeah. we did sort of a measurement on a couple popular uh, freely available bug finding tools. So our system puts like thousands and thousands of bugs into software. And when we went and measured, uh, these tools were finding about 2% of them. Oh my goodness. Yep. Yeah. Brendan, what worries me is, you know, I don't know how to code. But are you getting better at this, or is the nature of computer programming such that there will always be people such as you who are, in this Sisyphean way, chasing after this evil? So we've gotten better at it, but certainly not perfect. Um, There's a school of thought that says that we should be sort of trying to write programs kind of like mathematical proofs so that we can go and prove that they're correct from the get-go. But, you know, we're still a ways away from that. And so the other strategy is, you know, you just have a piece of software and you throw every technique you can at trying to find where the bugs are, take them out, fix them, and hopefully you get something that's actually reliable software. I have a very naive question. Are the mechanisms by which a bug hunting software works similar to the mechanisms by which a virus detecting software works, or are they really different areas? So they're pretty different, um, because a lot of um, sort of detecting viruses is about matching patterns that you've seen before. Whereas uh, bug finding software usually works by sort of trying to explore all the different paths through the program, trying to figure out all the different ways it could behave, and then seeing if any of those go wrong. Do we know, why are they called bugs in computer software? Yeah, so uh, there's kind of a popular story that turns out not to be completely true. That's the one we want, yeah. Yeah, good. That's exactly the intellectual caliber I expected here. So the sort of popular story is that there were some technicians working on one of the early computers, right? And so this was one of these big mainframes, took up an entire room, and it wasn't working. And so they sort of dug through this you know, long line of vacuum tubes and relays trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, they finally tracked it down to a single relay that had a short circuit with a moth. Mm. They took this moth and said, hey, this was the bug in our code, right? Right, right. yeah. Okay, so, so not true. Not true. Uh, what's the actual story then? So that story absolutely did happen. You oh. can go and see the bug today, it's just but that's not, not where the word bug came bugs. from. Okay. So you can actually go um, at least as far back as the 1870s, and Thomas Edison talks in his letters and journals about bugs in his inventions and how hard they are to fix and find. Um, so it's thought that this sort of comes from uh, the Middle English, and you probably know more about this than I do. Nope. <laughs> I don't remember any bugus in Middle English in this meaning, but... Um, but it, I think essentially meaning sort of a frightening thing. And so from yes. there you get things yes. like, okay, so from there you get things like uh, Bugbear, right? Huh. Okay, yeah. And Boogeyman? So, exactly, actually. Hmm. Um, and so the idea is that they're sort of gremlins in the machinery. Brendan, uh, this is fascinating stuff. I thank you so much for bringing it to us. Barry Weiss, does it check out? And do you have anything to add? It does check out. And one thing that I... I was uh, thinking about as you were talking is, so you are larding um, computer codes with figurative bugs, but the U.S. Army back in the 50s um, actually did something similar with actual bugs. So they were trying to see 
um, if they could in the way that the Japanese against China in World War II conducted entomological warfare. And so they wanted to see if they could do something similar. And so they carried out these secret tests involving um, bug-filled bombs. And the names of them are so amazing. They are Operation Big Buzz, Operation Dropkick. These both involved <laughs> hundreds of thousands of mosquitoes dropped over Georgia. And then Operation Big Itch, and that one used fleas. Wow. So do you, do you think that maybe your Camp Impetigo was uh, <laughs> yes. an army experiment gone wrong? It's maybe. all coming together. It's all coming together. Yeah. Well, thank you, Barry and Brendan. Thank you so much for playing thank Something You. Know. Great job. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more guests will make John McWhorter tell us some things we don't know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend one, please visit TMSIDK.com. You can follow us on social media at TMSIDK underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our fact checker tonight is Barry Weiss, and my co-host is John McWhorter. Before we get back to the game, we've got some questions, kind of lightning roundish questions, John, written especially for you. You feel ready? I'm excited. All right. Let's, let's do it. Turn up the spotlight. John McWhorter is ready to go. John, first question. Did you ever track down your four-year-old Hebrew-speaking girlfriend, Shirley, whether in a charming or creepy fashion? <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't creepy. She wore burgundy overalls, and she had shining brown eyes. She was like a little Peanuts character, and we used to walk around oh, wait, this hand in then. hand. She's not wearing the burgundy no, overalls I now. No, I doubt if she wears that now. Yep. And I never knew where she was, but I wrote in one of my books, if anybody knows this person. Oh. And about two years ago, somebody who knew her said that I was raving about her, and we got in touch. And it turns out that she is still... You know, charming. Awesome. She's a shaman and a rock musician. Wow. And it was the first time I had ever heard anybody speak another language. It was 1969. And she was lost to me. I didn't know what they were saying. And so I went to my mother and I said, Mom, what are they doing? What are they doing? And she said, they're speaking Hebrew, Jughead, because Jughead <laughs> was her name for me. And that is literally why I became a linguist, because I thought she can talk in that other way with the shlomchachacha. And we just, <laughs> we just do this. That was really the beginning, and now I am honored that I, I still know Shirley. Excellent. Uh, John, now that the bugs you collected as a kid are all dust, uh, what Go do on. you collect, if anything? Broadway cast albums. Mm. I've got 976 wow. at this point, so I've still got that. But really what I'm on really into no? is that I've got about 200 on vinyl, yeah. and then all the rest of it is on CD. Actually, with my daughter, we collect small, cheapy little liquor bottles. Oh. Whenever we're taking a walk, we Your look in the gutter. Your daughter's how old? She is five. So that's and a... <laughs> We look in the gutter, and we find little bottles of Jack Daniels and stuff. And we... That's we, seems we, like a we, very hot topic. It created a scandal back in the spring, because one time we were on the way to school, and we found a lovely bottle of golden something, and I put it in her backpack, and they found it... <laughs> They said, well, you know, Mr. McWhorter, maybe your daughter has a problem. But no, we've got the most beautiful collection of, what are they called? Nips. Nips. We've got a lovely collection of nips, and we put little flowers in them and things. They can be quite beautiful. So let me ask you this. As a linguist, you've argued that texting is not damaging to the English language. Not and at all. 
Also, even more uh, problematic for some people, that it's okay to modernize Shakespeare. Oh, yes. So, I, so my question for you is very simple. How much do your fellow academic linguists hate you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's actually interesting. Um, James Shapiro is the Shakespeare expert at Columbia. And he is God. And he and I have had many very civil conversations where we pretend not to disagree about this. And so I haven't taken all that much guff. I should say that it's not, I don't want it to be yo-yo Calpurnia. The idea is just to change the words that we can't understand. And I know that it's controversial, but you all know what it's like to go see King Lear if you haven't read it about 10 minutes before. You might leave saying, oh, it was wonderful. It wasn't wonderful because it wasn't the language that we speak. Give us a for instance. For instance, generous. Whenever anybody says generous in a Shakespeare play, you think that they mean magnanimous. They mean noble. They mean somebody who's living in a castle and, you know, up high and looking out. So somebody says generous, and you think, oh, they mean magnanimous, but, but they don't. It doesn't make sense, and then the person keeps talking. Mm. That happens about every six lines. Mm. And here's the simple knockdown argument. If we could resurrect... Bill Shakespeare, would you want us to do your plays exactly the way you wrote them when we don't fully understand them, or would you like us to modernize them to an extent so that people could hear them more or less the way your audiences did? You know that he would say, I should change it. He would say, because that, he talked like a pirate. A pirate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, John, you've said that if the world could have one universal language, that a good candidate might be Indonesian. Can you explain why you feel Indonesian is the right <laughs> language and explain it, please, in That's, Indonesian? This sounds so <laughs> pretentious. So I went to Indonesia for a short week, and it was the only language I've ever dealt with where, with my lonely planet, I learned about 200 words, and that worked. That's all I needed. There is very little of what makes languages hard. So I could string words together and say, I don't want a window seat. I want to try KFC once in this country. I would like to not have the air conditioner on. How many people do they see in Indonesia who happen to look like me? They all thought that I looked like, or sometimes was, Barack Obama. So whenever, <laughs> walking down the street, and I would have... I hope you took women. good advantage of that. It's, <laughs> I thought about it. Did I they, give you, did they rush up to you with uh, empty little liquor bottles for your collection? <laughs> No, but they thought I was very special. They would yeah. touch my face and they'd say, oh, you Obama. What? And I would say, okay. And <laughs> once one of the, the assistants from the hotel came into my room and was trying to get a picture of me and then he wanted memorabilia. What did and you so give him? I had a big stack of those plugs that you use so that wherever you go, you can plug it in. And I found that really I didn't need two of them. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I actually could say this. Now he thinks Barack Obama gave him an adapter. <laughs> and John, uh, if you could unilaterally pick the word of the year right now, what would it be? I know I'm supposed to pick some cute colloquialism. Is it nips? It's not. <laughs> no, it's, it's not one word, it's two. Based off. Based <laughs> off of what you said, that has become default. I learned in my old age... I learned based on what you said, sir, uh -huh. but now it's based off what you said, and now everybody says based off. The word of the year is not like kofefe or something <laughs> like that. The word of the year is based off. Can I just say, I'm glad you became a linguist. Well, Because Shirley I don't know is... what else you would have done with... Uh... <laughs>
John McWhorter, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next guest, David Rothenberg. Hi there, David. What do you do? I'm a musician who plays music with bugs uh, and other animals. And, and sometimes so, whales, birds, people, really? occasionally and, people. And do they know that you're playing with them? Sometimes they know, sometimes they don't know. Does it happen live or recorded only? Both, especially live. Live is always more interesting, as you know, from this, this show. Okay, so what did you come here to tell us about, David? In China, people collect and keep crickets in tiny cages just to listen to their song. Really? Uh, apparently they do a little better job than John McWhorter of keeping them alive, yeah? They could give him some advice, yeah. yeah. In Jackson Heights, there is a little baby cricket dying in a parquet <laughs> dish right now. That's very sad. Now, now uh, tell us more about the cricket keeping in China. Well, for thousands of years in China and also Japan, people have appreciated insect sounds so much that they, they try and keep these little critters alive mm. as long as possible through the summer and autumn and you know, feeding them with little droplets and keeping them in these tiny little boxes to listen. So is, is it relatively hard to keep uh, insects alive and force them to sing for you? I think in the beginning it's easy, but to keep them alive as yeah. long as possible. And that's do you want like a, a hundred crickets in a box or do you want one? Do you want a quartet? What well, are you looking for? there is a man in Sweden, a famous uh, sinophile and linguist. He kept 108 crickets in his apartment and, and of different species. <laughs> so you can look this up if you don't believe me. And he, he created an orchestra of singing crickets. No and then way. he got he invited various musicians to come and play with him. And so I'm not the only one who does this. Uh, I go out and find the kinds of crickets that are around. Like you can just go right outside here and you hear this beautiful sound of the snowy tree cricket, which we can play right now if you want. Frankly, that's what you go into your laundry and kill when it comes out from under the washing machine. Why would you kill something that sounded so beautiful? Because I can't sleep with that, but I assume that they're different cricket sounds. People, it's, that's the kind of sound that traditionally in China the they would one? keep. Hmm. That's one of the sounds they love. In fact, some Chinese cricket enthusiasts oh. have come to America and said, your cricket sounds so much better than ours. You know, why don't you take this seriously? <laughs> Um, is there a big difference in the sound of the Chinese and the American crickets? Not so much. I took that one sound you just heard and, and, and played around with it and changed the pitch and added and multiplied it and created oh. a whole orchestra of cricket sounds, which I'll play along with now. Oh, let's hear that, yeah.
I have to say, the crickets are good, but you're great. Thanks. Thank you. Wow. Thanks. That was... Um, Thanks a lot. That was really lovely and, and amazing. I'm curious, um, I don't know how much the cricket sound was manipulated in that recording, but it does sound, even from the earlier simple recording that you played, that this, the crickets are kind of synchronized. Is that naturally what they do? They do that. It's pretty amazing. I mean, you hear them, they'll go in and out of synchronization. They are able to, to hear a sound that's near them and get closer to it over and over and over again, similar to the way fireflies do it with light. Mm, mm-hmm. And this actually has been applied in, in the computer network theory. There's something called firefly synchronization. I don't really know what it is, but it's based on this. That they, you know, something happens, something else is nearby to get closer and closer and closer. That's all they need to know to form these rhythms. Mm. And more complicated insects do the same, like katydids, you hear going Do we have any idea to what degree insect and or other natural sounds have influenced the creation of human music over the millennia? I think probably a lot. I think this is where we got our interest in rhythm. You know, traditionally people say from walking we get a sense of rhythm and the beat. But I think we, we evolved surrounded by millions of years of insects and these rhythms all around us and that as we figured out what it meant to be human, you know, our, our music and our love of rhythm began in the midst of, a, of an insect-saturated world of cool sounds. Mm. Do most musicologists consider insect music, insect sound to be music? Most of them don't give it a moment's thought. But throughout the history of music, you know, many important composers and musicologists have, like Bartok, Bela Bartok, Hungarian composer and you know, also ethnomusicologists. And in New Yorker for some time. Yeah, and he studied folk music quite a lot and was, while collecting folk songs, was collecting more bugs, putting them in little boxes and, and really published as an entomologist mm. in addition to being a composer. Barry Weiss, David Rothenberg has brought us a little cricket music, uh, including the story of crickets in China for musical purposes. What more can you tell us? Well, first of all, David is the dude on this. Uh-huh. Like, if you Google David Rothenberg acoustic <laughs> yeah. ecology, he is your guy. Um, also strange thing, John McCorder might be a bit of a shaman because David walks onto the stage and he leans over to me and says, do you play clarinet? I, the only instrument I've ever had a lesson in is clarinet. Honest moment. I, I just know. thought I can tell. I know. It was so, very strange. Something about you. So, uh, so like computer <laughs> science, don't know that much about acoustic ecology. I do, however, know a lot about YouTube videos of dogs singing to Adele, which is something... um, (laughs) I thought that we could play a clip of one of these. You're saying that dogs howl more to Adele than yes, Taylor Swift and much all, more, huh. and they cry to the songs that, like someone like you, they're sobbing, and so there are all of these tantalizing headlines on websites online, like why your dog cries to Adele, and I'm like, I click on all of them because I really <laughs> want to know, and the thing is, they're extremely disappointing. Like the only explanation is a hurting cry or because they enjoy it. So really what this is, is a PSA for anyone listening to this. And maybe, David, you're the person that can explain why Adele specifically gets under dog's fur or why dogs respond to specific 
song. Or why I had a cat who used to roll furiously on the floor to Bach played on the mm. organ. But only Bach. Well, you know, Charles Darwin did write that animals do have an, a sense of aesthetics, and that's why they evolved beautiful songs and beautiful feathers. And he had a real hard time with this because it didn't really sound like survival of the fittest. Now biologists have kind of, you know, for 100 years, not taken this very seriously. And they're starting to take it more seriously, I think, because um, we're realizing the beauty of nature is out there. And we're not, we, we can't explain it really that well. You know, so why do dogs sing with Adele? You know, why does everyone else like Adele? Why, do, why does, you know, she, she's mysteriously popular. And, for, you know, whoever you are. David Rothenberg, thank you so much. It is time for one last break. When we return, a couple more guests, and then you, our live audience, will pick a winner. That's right after this. Welcome back. Would you please welcome our next guest, Dan Goldstein. Come on up, Dan. Hey there, Dan. What do you do? I'm a principal researcher at Microsoft Research right here in New York City. Very good. And what do you have for us tonight? My question for you is, what is referred to as the religious war in the online publishing business? Does it have something to do with pornography or fake news or Facebook or fake pornography news on Facebook? (laughs) No to all. Does it have to do with advertising and its effectiveness? Has to do with advertising. Mm. Okay, so the, the, the religious war inside online publishing having to do with advertising. Well, yeah. uh, why don't you tell us? Right. You know those really annoying display ads that you see? Uh, I don't because I use an ad blocker. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but do you if mean I... like do this just this one trick and you'll never have belly fat ever again? Because I click yes. on those all the I've time. I've seen that. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Belly fat ads or ads with nasty teeth yeah. or ads with giraffes munching interest rates or people applying jumper cables to their ears. What's or, the debate then exactly? So these, are, these are what we call annoying ads. Although Barry and John both seem to love them. So many creative solutions to belly fat. <laughs> I, have, I have followed quite a few of them. Well, this, this, the, your love it helps fuel the debate because the debate... Inside the publishing company is, should we run these ads or should we not? In other words, what is the right level of annoying? Is that kind of the idea? Let's think about it from an economic perspective. So why would you run the ads? Uh, because somebody probably pays me quite a lot for a very you're annoying ad. you paid to run the ad, of course. And if you're a salesperson, you're getting what? Commission. You're getting commission. So you want to run these ads no matter who the advertiser is. As long as you're getting a non-zero amount, you're good. Right. Now, why would you not want to run the ads? Why would you be on the other side of the religious war? Because I'm worried that my potential customers get so annoyed by the annoying ads that they might just stop coming to my website. Yes, and what does that do for business? Uh, I assume I make less money. That's right. Fewer people come to your website, fewer pages are loaded, fewer ads are seen, you make less money, it's kind of a, a death spiral. So this question is, what do we do? The ads both make money and they lose uh, money. Okay, so you and we wanna... have these different parties arguing as to like run the ads. I got it. So enter someone like you who can run some A-B testing or maybe A through Z testing to figure out whether it's actually worth it. Is that the idea? Yeah, we were sitting around. The chief economist came in, told us about the religious war, and we thought, well, 
maybe if we could put a dollar value on this annoyance, we could get somewhere. So we did a little experiment. First, we had to find some very annoying ads. So we showed people, we went to an online ad archive and we dug up a a large number of ads and showed them to people and just had them rate them on how Mm -hmm. annoying they were. (laughs) And if they, if they said they were annoying, we had them tell us why they were annoying. Yeah, like what, what exactly is annoying? So, for example, the belly fat ads, I don't find it annoying to see a man with a bit of a paunch and then he's thinner. I'm not annoyed. I'm intrigued. What, what is an annoying ad? Okay, so the number one reason people gave why did you rate this ad annoying was animation. Uh, people don't yeah. like ads that move. The second reason was basically that the ad was annoying, so we kind of had to ignore the second reason. Right. Annoying, distracting, whatever. Um, the third reason, fourth, fifth, were uh, it seems to be disreputable. It seems to be a scam. It could give me bugs, tying into the theme of our show. Nicely done. Thank you. Um, yep. So we, we built a website where people could do little micro tasks. They do little jobs and we pay them, yeah. pay them money. And when you go to the website, you're randomly assigned to, to see no ads, to see normal ads, or to see like, these very annoying ads. And then what we just did is we measured how long people stuck around. <laughs> And sure enough, the people who had to see the annoying ads while they were working, even though they were getting paid, uh, right, yeah. they, they took off sooner. Mm-hmm. So then what we did is we basically jacked up the amount of money that we would pay them to figure out how much do you need to pay somebody to stick around right. in the annoyed wow. condition as they would in the non-annoyed condition. That's a neat experiment. So how much yep. more, like if X was what you started at and they were abandoning at whatever rate, how much did you jack it up? We found that if, if X is the amount of money that we make as a publisher to run the ads, yeah. the annoyance amount was 3X. So oh, basically, wow. it costs you more money to uh, apologize for the damage of the ads than you make by running wow. the ads themselves. So you're determining this experimentally as, yep. a, as a researcher. Yep. Um, do publishers and ad agencies and the companies that have those ads, don't they sense this already? Um, because wouldn't they be running their own A-B testing? In other words, if I'm selling you know, uh, bank mortgages, wouldn't I have already tried the annoying giraffe and the something else and determined, oh, that one wouldn't work so well? So the advertisers themselves, it's an open question as to why they're running the annoying ads. It could be that there's just, they're paying very little to place these ads. These are like the, the bottom of the barrel uh, ads. Um, and there could be some weird segment of the population that likes these ads. From the publisher's point of view, the reason they didn't know is because all they knew is how much they were getting paid to yeah, run the ads. Right. They didn't know they didn't have the counterfactual. how much damage. Yeah, so, okay, so have you published this research? We published this research, and it was very well received. I, I get a bun in the stomach just talking about it. <laughs> Um, I started an expression. It's official tonight. Everybody use that. So what do, uh, you know, what do online advertisers who read your work and understand that, uh, did, did they change their behavior in, as a result of it or no? Uh, well, hopefully the publishers would raise the minimum yeah. price at which they would run an annoying ad mm-hmm. you know, based on our research. And, and that would mean... The- fewer annoying ads out there in the right. world that right. we have to deal and with. And have you seen that happening? Uh, well, we don't know. Barry Weiss, Dan Goldstein from Microsoft Research telling us why annoying ads are not worth it. Is it check out? Yes, although I have to say, to me, in pu- I'm in newspaper publishing, and the religious war is more about native advertising versus outside advertising. Have you done any research into that? 
Uh, I haven't. So let me say it's not the only religious war, but <laughs> native advertising, I, I think the best definition I've heard of it, for those who don't know, is ads that don't look like ads. Right. You um, think it's like a, an article. It's labeled. The, think it's an but, article. but subtly. It's, yeah, but subtly. They're kind of like the opposite of annoying ads in that people are like, oh, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, is, exactly. oh, this is nice. And, and then, then you realize it's, it's, some, it's an ad. Yeah, so I guess um, the thing that interested me was that... Um, who do we have to blame for all of this? Who do we have to blame for the fact... Can it be Dan or no? It could be Dan, sure. I feel like Dan could take it. Um, it's a guy called Ethan Zuckerman, or at least he's taking a lot of the blame. Do you know who that is? No, I don't. Okay, so he claims that he's the one who committed the original sin of the internet by creating the pop-up ad. Now, he did this in the early 1990s. He was working at this website called tripod.com, and he wrote the code for the first pop-up ad. And the thing that I love about this story is that the origin story has to do with anal sex, of all things. Um, The reason that they came up with the pop-up ad, I'm serious, um, is because this major car company freaked out that they bought... Car company? Yeah, they bought a banner ad on a page that, like, was a porn site for anal sex, and they wanted a way sort of around it. So um, he wrote the code to launch a pop-up ad within the site so it wouldn't seem as though it was native to the page. Anyway, he wrote this amazing article, which is really worth reading in The Atlantic, like just mea culpa all the way for for ruining the internet for all of us. Well, I'm glad we didn't blame Dan, because you don't look like the kind of guy who would do something like like that. that. Yeah, (laughs) like that. Dan Goldstein, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something Out Now. Great job. Would you please welcome our final guest of the evening, Keith Hopper. Hi there, Keith. Hello. I have to say, for a show about bugs, a guy with Hopper is not a bad way to end it. (laughs) So thank you. What do you do? I've heard that one before. Yeah, what do you do? Uh, I'm a research scientist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, Mm -hmm. I work on the evolution and ecology of insects. Okay, so... um, Tell us what, uh, what you know that you think we don't know that's worth knowing. Well, our mission is to control insect pests. Okay. How are we doing that? Uh, napalm? What do we, what do we, <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, it's going to have something to do with making them mate with sterile versions of themselves. That is a method of control, sterile one. insect technique, but that's not what I'm talking that's about. That's not it, huh? Can you play a certain kind of uh, music, say Adele? Uh... <laughs> well, they do have very interesting courtship behavior, and they do some wing fanning and intonation that probably makes sounds, but uh, that's not it. Uh, do you want to get, is there a particular pest uh, you're trying to get rid of that you're, in this context, you're, you're just talking uh, generally? I work primarily on aphids like soybean aphid and yep. Russian wheat aphid. They're mm-hmm. pests on major crops. Are, Does it involve changing the nature of the surface of the plant in question so that they can't gain purchase? No. Something like that? No, no. Nothing that easy. Do you want to destroy the aphids? Um, Just keep them from damaging the crops. Well, how do you do that? Just give them a stern talking to? <laughs> what, how do aphids hurt the plants? They suck out their juices mm. and reduce the yield. And they produce honeydew, which produces mold, which oh. reduces photosynthesis. I remember aphids attacking my mother's vegetable garden one year back during the Carter administration. I remember that stickiness 
that Honey they yes. that they pulled. Yeah, and it was it was kind of pretty, but it yeah. meant that we couldn't have any kohlrabi, which was yeah. good because kohlrabi tasted like death. But um, <laughs> okay, I know what you might do. You make the plant taste bad, but not to us. It has something. People do do that, but, but that's not not, not yeah, what I'm working on. Okay, oh, yeah. and I work on that with other people, but that's not my research. Okay. Yeah. All right, so you've come up with a way that is either promising or successful, yes? Well, it, I didn't actually come up with it. I just use it. You and, use it. Is it promising or that it's means it's successful? extremely successful. Really? Extremely successful. So the war on aphids is being waged successfully by the United States Department of Agriculture? Yes. For which we should all be grateful, I guess? Yes. Okay. Yes. So how'd you do it? We use parasitic wasps. So, parasitic wasps? Yeah, they're Hundreds of thousands of species of parasitic wasps. Most insects have parasites that are wasps. Wow. They're like the, the creature and alien. They lay their eggs inside the aphids or the other insects. They feed on the inside while the insect's still living. And then they kill the insect eventually and chew their way out, leaving a husk of an insect. Leaving Fla- the husk of an insect and a lot of parasitic wasps, though? Yes, lots of parasitic wasps. And what do they do? Are they, they parasitize more aphids or more insects. But what happens when they run out of aphids? Do they come after us? Nope. <laughs> nope. They're very specific. And in fact, that's one of the things I work on is the, their specificity. So most of the things that we work on are invasive pests, like soybean aphid from Asia, uh, Russian wheat aphid from Russia, uh, and they arrive without their natural enemies, and they become hugely damaging, billions of dollars of damage a year. If we go back to their area of origin and find these parasitic wasps, like in Central Asia, we test them to make sure that they're host-specific. They only attack the thing we want to attack. How long did it take to find the right species or whatnot? Well, on the soybean aphid project, Mm -hmm. a decade. You're kidding. No. Well... Remember how in the Little House books, about you know one third of the way through, locusts come and basically just eat everything except the characters. Yes, and then they kind of they kind of move on. And one, does that still happen? And yes. two, if it doesn't, or if it does, why can't you find something that would eat through them? Uh, it still happens. It's a big problem in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and well, in, in Africa, nor- northern Africa as well, with locusts. And uh, the locusts do have parasites, but they can reach such numbers that they overcome their parasites. Really? They're that bad? Yeah. In the books, they eat the handles of the tools. Yeah. It's really, it's a frightening... Soybean aphid was so abundant that it was in the front pages of the uh, newspapers in Toronto. People had to wear masks because they were breathing in the aphids. Wow. And by the way, I've eaten aphids, so... Oh, yummy? Oh, my God! Deep, deep fried or chocolate covered or what? No, just... Just pop them in. True, you know, raw. What do wow. they taste like? They, they, they taste wow. like honey or honeydew. Oh. So aphids are phloem feeders, and they have to eat a lot of phloem to get enough nutrition to grow. And so that's why they... I'm make sorry, it. what's that word? Phloem? Yeah, was... Phloem is the, the, the sap. They have okay. to eat sap. Okay. And... The sap doesn't have much uh, nutrients in it. So they, so they have to eat a lot, and they poop it out, oh. and that's what makes the honeydew, and they taste really sweet. Hmm. So wait, the honeydew melon is not made of poop, then? Is it <laughs> a, different, a different thing? You that's sure? A, yeah, I'm positive. Have you ever eaten a grasshopper straight? Because when I was a lonely teenager, I don't know what I was working through, but I would used to go to the highway, and when I was alone, I ate a few of those little things, and... 
they actually they're very was, good. They yeah. were really delicious. delicious. <laughs> Especially the gravid females. Kind of funky. The eggs are like caviar. You know? Yes, That's they exactly were. Right. When you they had the those, they had those fat ovipostors. <laughs> oh, it was gourmet. Yeah. And you'd wash I, it down with a nip from the gutter. <laughs> oh, so China, in China, people eat a lot of insects. I was there in northeastern China, and we had uh, silkworm larvae mm-hmm. and pupae, mm-hmm. uh, big as your thumb, mm. fried and mm. steamed. And Did they taste absolutely. like chicken? No, they taste sort of buttery and nutty. Mm. Yeah, delicious. Mm. Should try. Keith Hopper, thanks so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Can we give one more hand to all our guests tonight? I thought that was just great stuff. Thank you. It's time now for our live audience to pick a winner. But first, John McWhorter, Barry Weiss, and I will talk quickly about some of uh, our favorites. Remember, everyone, the three criteria we're going to vote on did... Our guests tell us something we truly did not know. Was it worth knowing, and was it demonstrably true? So, John, I'm just curious to know what uh, of all these impressive things tonight particularly impressed you. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to choose. I mean, genuinely hard to choose, but I must admit that slugs seem quite minor. The idea that there's something that could come out of them that would actually help humanity, I thoroughly enjoy that. I'm going to carry that away. That's going to keep me from sleeping tonight. And (laughs) also that business with the parasitic wasps, because there are a lot of animals that just live through eating through other animals. It shows you that nature red in tooth and claw and, you know, what is the meaning of life. And so that probably is going to stick with me as well. I also like music. Mm -hmm. That grabbed me as well. But the slugs, Mm -hmm. and not just because it was first, but Mm -hmm. that probably struck my, oh my goodness, counterintuitive mm-hmm. part. Barry Weiss, uh, what'd you hear that, uh, that you didn't know that uh, you thought was worth knowing? I learned a lot, and I think the thing that struck me um, is the elegant, like, finding solutions yeah. to problems in nature. Yeah. So I'm going to remember that with both wasps and slugs. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to look into the sexual selection mm. business that yeah. David was talking about. And also, interestingly, the two computer stories were problem-solving as well, right? Using, yes. using you know, intentionally bugging to figure out how to code better and uh, getting rid of those annoying ads. The yeah. counterintuitive creating yeah. you know, benefits for yeah. humanity, definitely. Um, so for my part, I would say, you know, I've always been a sucker for the old uh, clarinet-cricket combination uh, in music. That's just me. <laughs> Um, I feel like uh, I share with you the real appreciation for how much, uh, how much solutioning was going on out here. So, I'm gl- look, I'm glad I don't have to vote. That's what you all do. You're going to have to pick one now. So, dear live audience, you've heard from us. Our votes are totally non-binding. You pick the winner, and it's time now to do that. So please take out your phones, follow the texting instructions on the screen. So who's it going to be tonight? Andy Smith with Medical Glue from Slugs. Brendan Dolan-Gavitt with why you should pre-bug your software. David Rothenberg with a little cricket music. Dan Goldstein with why annoying ads aren't worth it. Or Keith Hopper with parasitic wasps. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to listen to this show without ads, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tell me. Thank you. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thanks so much to all our guest presenters. Our winner tonight telling us about... 
medical glue from slugs, Andy Smith. Congratulations. Andy, to commemorate your victory, we'd like to present you with this Certificate of Impressive Knowledge. That's our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you did not know. Huge thanks to John and Barry, to our guests, and thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Thank you so much. Next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know, we are learning about the senses, sight, sound, smell, and more with Top Chef Judge Gail Simmons. You say that like it's surprising. Like, can you believe (laughs) they don't like the smell of manure? Mm. That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Rachel Jacobs, Nathan Rossborough, Andrew Dunn, and David Herman, who also composed our theme music. Also, thanks to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting the show together. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. <laughs>